Hello, welcome back to Unstandardized English. This is JPB Gerald. Um, for the first time in a while, I have a new patron that I need to shout out here. This is Carrie Martindale. I want to thank you for your contribution. Anybody who's interested in doing so, the link is in the description. Um, but yeah, so this is a uh, podcast about white epistemology, just the ideas that go into constructing whiteness and how we can sort of take them apart. But this is a different episode. I did this two years ago, and it's the first time I've had a chance to be in person since then. So I recorded my presentation um, from the New York State TESOL conference. Now, this is a chapter that's going to be in an academic book that's coming out, I don't know, sometime. You don't know what these books. Um, my chapter was about special education, but I sort of adapted the ideas because they're pretty universal to language teaching. Um, the chapter is called Checklists and Merit Badges. And it's really about how people take shortcuts to try to do really complex things like anti-racism or decolonizing their curriculum. And then they uh, slap uh, a merit badge on themselves. Like, oh, I'm an anti-racist. I'm an ELL warrior without having done the difficult work. So it goes through that. It's kind of, it's kind of a comedy routine, honestly. <laughs> um, sort of uh, really being critical of the way that these things go. And, you know, um, well, hopefully you enjoy it. Uh, because generally speaking, my audiences often do, although I'm recording this before the presentation happens. So I guess I have no idea if the audience liked it or not. If they hated it, this won't actually air. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Good afternoon, folks. Come on, come on. All right, so uh, my name is JPB Gerald. Uh, my day job, we don't need to talk about, it's boring, but I'm also a doctoral candidate at CUNY Hunter College. Uh, my research focuses on sort of the intersection between language, race, and ability. You're going to hear me talk about all three of those things today. Um, what this is, is this is a chapter that's going to be in an edited volume, which is going to be published at some undetermined time because you know how academic publishing is um when that book comes out you can have it but it's just you know they said it was going to be this fall maybe it'll be spring try to get a bunch of academics to do things on schedule is not i'm not the editor so that one's not up to me although i am writing a book and we can talk about that later uh and what happened is that the people my advisor sent me the link to or the whatever to like you should propose for this because she's the editor and i was like it's clever of you um and uh, what this is, is that I wanted to write a little bit about what I see, especially because I got this idea two years ago, last time I was in this hotel. Um, and it's not just language teaching. This isn't, when I talk about the stuff, I talk about a lot of things. It's not just like literally the language and the grammar and all that. Uh, it's because a lot of the ideologies that go into this, we still have this sort of silver bullet buzzword mindset. You know, I think you all know that, but I'm going to go over some of the ways these things intersect and how they can be harmful. And at the end, we're going to talk about how we can get away from the sort of buzzwordy thing. That's basically what this is. All right, you see over here, just some ideas that show up a lot. They're not just language things, but they show up in language, right? Uh, these are more of the checklist type things. It's not literally a list with checks on it. It's things that are sort of silver bullety. And then over here, you have what I'm calling merit badges, where people are just sort of slapping labels on themselves without really doing the internal work necessary. So let's talk a little bit about that. That's my name. That's the subtitle. All right. 
So uh, we are supposedly in White Plains, but we're really on stolen Muslinafi land. That's not just a land acknowledgement, but it's important to think about because it's the only reason we speak this language is because, we, no, well, not, not we, but people took over the land and imposed it on the people who were here after the Dutch first, but you know, now it's English. Uh, the English language has for centuries been not only, but often a tool of oppression and erasure dating back to how the indigenous, all the victims of British and American colonization, there's other types of colonization, but I'm talking about English, uh, and the enslaved were forcibly assimilated. So we got to keep this in mind when we think about how we can reform, you know, around the edges of what we do when we have to go back to the ideologies that this whole thing is founded on. Okay, so there's a lot of words here. That's why I highlighted some of them. Uh, you don't have to read all of it. It's just, it's a chapter. So I didn't put the whole chapter on here, don't worry. Uh, you know, there's always teaching tips. People want to say, uh, what can I take back to my classroom? And that's a good idea. But the problem is, if your ideologies haven't changed and you haven't done the internal work, then teaching tips don't matter, right? There's no such thing as an equity strategy if you haven't done, if, if you were in Jasmine's talk just now, or if you haven't done the work, the thinking, to change the way you approach things, right? So, uh, you know, I, I came two years ago, and it's not just this conference, it's just that's where we are. And you know, people fill the room when it's like, and here's this one thing you can do that'll save your students, right? You know, it's a teaching tip that we can put, I can put it right into my lesson plan. Gotta put it right into my lesson plan. Now, that's not every idea. I'm not saying approaches are always bad, okay? But you know what I'm talking about when I say this, right? It's the idea of the silver bullet that will, as they say, satisfice. You can see it, it's there, all right? I think you can figure out what two words that combines. But basically, it's to do just as much as needed to be left alone. And I understand this is a particularly tough time. And I wrote this before all of this. But you know, I get it, right? Work is hard. It's not just education. You see this in all sort of social service type things. You see it in social work. You see it in nonprofits. You see it in medicine, too. Not like surgery, but other types of things. But that means that teachers, even those with supposedly good intentions, and I tend to believe, maybe I'm a Pollyanna about it, but I tend to believe no teachers have good intentions, but we, tell, we still reach for easier solutions that don't challenge the systems and challenge the ideologies around us. So uh, too many of us tick off educational checklists. We compartmentalize and externalize the internal work necessary for the growth. And then we declare ourselves a list of things, which I'll get to later, and that are just sort of hastily applied labels when we didn't really do anything to change who has the power in the system, right? So, which is what I'm calling Mary Bad is because I was a Boy Scout and it seemed like a good thing to call it. The point of all this is that there's too many buzzwords and shortcuts in education, all right? Which is a fun thing to be saying in here because they're all around us right now. But uh, I understand why we gravitate towards these things. Oh my God, I don't care. I do not care. Uh, <laughs> But ultimately, they don't address the central issue in our field, which is the fact that our students are stigmatized for the way they communicate. I, if you're teaching the teachers, then you know what I mean, the students, the language learners. Um, the reason these shortcuts uh, fall short is because they're tied to the way our field centers whiteness and a bunch of other things, uh, and the way language learners are classified as deficient and sort of essentially disabled, right? Just at the core, even if they're not literally labeled as such, they are classified that way. We're going to talk about some of these shortcuts, how they intersect, and how we can do better in showing students the radical love that they deserve. Radical love. What's that, Justin? Well, come on. So the literal definition is unconditional love, 
unmotivated by the possibility of reciprocation or reward. Fine. But what it really means is rejecting the banking system of education, which I'm sure most of you have heard of, right, with Paulo Freire and all of that, right, where teachers are positioned as sages full of knowledge and we're going to fill these empty vessel students. Uh, our students, that's not what they need, right? There are things we can help them with. But what they need is radical love, which requires risk and authenticity that we often do not practice. And I can I count myself among this. I have not always been good at this myself. Uh, this tendency towards the checklists and the merit badges inhibits the possibility for the cultivation of radical love and an investment in the standard constructions of whiteness and racial linguistic ideologies, which of course are one and the same, uh, and dominant conceptions of ability, conceptualizations of ability, ensures that these qualities will never develop. We are not doing the work we need to do. I have more to say about radical love. So basically education, and it's not just language, but definitely so there, we codify any resistance to a teacher's choices as maladaptive behavior, right? Because, you know, students are talking out of turn, right? They're misbehaving when they might just be uncomfortable for reasons that we're not interrogating. Uh, we have to commit ourselves to the dialogue and the capacity to take risks for the benefit of those we teach and ourselves, because ultimately, yes, it's about the students, but it's good for us too. We are raised on the public pedagogy of popular culture that features white teachers, you know, saving the broken and deprived students. You've all seen the movies, right? You've all seen the TV shows. And even if we say, well, we know that that's not realistic, it's still what a lot of teachers do and it brings them into the field, unfortunately. Now, few people or few teachers would agree that they're paternalistic, but with gender, it's usually maternalistic. Uh, behavior does not represent love. And I can see it's a form of love, it's a form of affection, but because of the power differential created by the schools in which these teachers work, and it's fully embraced by the, the teachers as well, this sort of love, it can be called that, is tainted, it's weak, and it doesn't really support the oppressed students. Right? It is, it's a kind of love, but it is very conditional because as soon as you step out of the bounds of what's expected of you, well, then it goes away. Well, then what kind of love is that? So whiteness is a perfect antidote to radical love because it's built on hierarchies and stigmatization and it cannot exist without it, right? And when I say that, compartmentalizing whiteness and saying, well, this is the bad part of whiteness, this is the good part of whiteness, that doesn't really matter because that is the way that people will continue to separate themselves from the issue. All right, we all have to be really understanding of our potential complicity in whiteness, even if we are not white ourselves, okay? So, and I don't say white individuals, white people per se, although many, uh, certainly not ethnicities that are largely comprised of students with, or people with light colored skin, which, you know, that's not anyone's fault, right? But the concept of it is not functionally separable from white supremacy because it was created to be supreme, didn't just fall out of the sky, okay? And that whiteness is what prevents the love that's needed for minoritized students. So ultimately, the more one's invested in whiteness and its related ideologies, the farther one is from being able to demonstrate radical love. There's my introduction. Let's talk about some checklists. So we all know this one. Let's talk about grit for a second. Uh, you know the definition, right? Perseverance and passion over long-term goals as written by Angela Duckworth in 2007. Uh, she just had an article published in Educational Researcher talking about how much students are struggling with remote learning and she blamed everything on students because that's what she does. Anyway, uh, the problem is not the idea of grit itself, okay? All of these things, it's not the thing, it's how they're used, right? It is a prominent example, 
not even the most prominent anymore, because it was a bigger deal 10 years ago, of an endless and uninterrupted string of quick fixes, which is what I'm calling checklists, that well-meaning teachers, who are mostly but not exclusively white, because you don't have to be white to be into this, uh, rely on in an attempt to help their students without recognizing the inherent deficit implied by these concepts, right? The students that lack grit are not going to be treated as well as students with grit, even if we call it something other than a test score or something else, right? So the avoidance of the necessary analysis of all forms of oppression is really the common feature of all of these different checklist things. Think about how grit can be applied to your students or if you teach teachers, their students, uh, and how the lack of it can be used against students. It doesn't matter what it's called. It could be character, could be resilience, right? I read a book called How Children Succeed and they were talking about, well, these students have a certain type of character and then they have a better chance of succeeding. I read a book called The Smartest Kids in the World, which just like when you already have that title, it's not gonna end up well. Uh, but it, you know, but you know, I read it at a different time in my life, and I, that's why I have a book that I disagree with in my house. Um, but anyway, they were talking about resilience in there. Doesn't matter what it's called. There's always something in the students that needs to be found and improved. Okay. So unsaid remains the implication that students with supposed character or resilience or grit are flawed are less likely to achieve. Right. And of course, the less successful students somehow are always the poor students, the racialized students, the language learners, right? I don't know how this happens. You found a new way to measure people and we measured the people lacking who were the people who were lacking in the first place, somehow. Everyone wants to fix the children, but they refuse to admit that they are complicit in harming, even if it's not intentional, right? No matter what word they use to solve the problem that they themselves don't quite realize that they represent. So there's some other types of checklists, right? You could name a bunch of these, and I'm going to make you name a bunch of these at the end of this. I was really into non-cognitive or metacognitive skills for a while, because I was like, well, maybe if we talk about, we think about thinking, then it won't end. But they, they just use the concept the same way. Growth mindset is a useful psychological concept, but all you do, once you have a test that you rank the students on, then you're doing the same thing you were doing before. Uh, and then a lot of things you're going to see today. But, you know, uh, None of these things are inherently bad. The problem is they're all positioned as quick fixes that place the blame on the students or the student's environment or background or the student's parents, right? Or their culture, right? I saw a uh, material that came out in Georgia recently going into this school year talking about risk factors for English learners. And they were all things like their culture, right? We're gonna, the presentation I'm doing tomorrow is about that. So, you know, you wanna come to that if you want. But the point is, the blame is always placed on the students, their environment, their background, that sort of thing. Let's put it this way. The strategy can be counted like, if you do these five things, everything will be fixed. And it's basically a checklist, whether or not it's in list form. All right? And this reliance on checklists is tied inextricably to the way we stigmatize other varieties of English. If we didn't see our students as needed fixing, then we wouldn't have so many checklists. So on the other hand, some educators do seem to have come to this understanding. They say, you know what? I gotta do something about this. Gotta challenge racial and linguistic ideologies. Maybe they don't use that phrase, but they're like, I gotta do something. Uh, and they take some steps. They change their curriculum a little bit, right? Or they change this way the seats are organized in the classroom. That's a big one. Uh, but ultimately, people will start along this important path and they'll take two steps and they'll be like, I got it, did it, it's finished. 
Uh, and then they slap a merit badge on themselves and consider, consider their job done. So you can't just call yourself an anti-racist, right? Uh, that's a label that has to come from other people about you, right? You can engage in anti-racism, but it's an iterative and daily practice. It's not just, I taught a different, you know, read uh, author in my classroom, which you should do, but you got to think about where do I live? Where am I raising my kids? Who are, who are my kids around, right? Who am I spending my time with, right? Anti-racism isn't just like the books you read, things like that. Yeah, great. You don't like President 45. A lot of people don't, but you don't consider your role in the system is not really going far enough. You know, anti-racism is about shifting power. It's not really about being mean to people or not being mean to people. Yeah, you shouldn't be mean to people, but that's not really what the deal is. Uh, if nothing has been challenged, if you start at the beginning and you had this much power and the students had this much, and then you did an anti-racism and this same amount of power, you didn't really do anything. So when you slap this descriptor on your social media profile or you put up a lawn sign in your neighborhood, doesn't actually have any black people in it, then, you know, he didn't really challenge the system and all of the ideologies in it. A very important one for language teaching. I hear a lot of talk about decolonization, decolonizing my curriculum, decolonizing my pedagogy, whatever it is. That's good, I guess. But let's think about this. Language education is built on the back of colonization and settler colonialism, as I mentioned at the beginning. Okay, we cannot actually decolonize the field if the ideologies at the center of it are still in place. It is a colonial field, all right? If we are still assessing our students as deficient merely for using different varieties of English, then we are feeding into colonization or colonialism today, even if we're not taking over countries anymore. Uh, well, they, they have military bases everywhere, so. Um, if you're still stratifying students by the supposed fluency and allowing their progress to be affected by this, like their life progress to be affected by this, nothing has been decolonized. And here's what I bring in the ability thing that I was mentioning before, because colonized people, right? People arrived on the shores of a place and they decided these people, they're basically, you know, as mentally capable as children, we gotta fix them. We gotta, we gotta civilize them. We gotta teach them this language, right? We gotta make sure they can be more like us, right? And uh, the people who, for whatever reason, were better able to adapt to the language that was imposed on them were considered more civilized. And that's not too different from the way that we see it now. There's research by Macedo and things like that talking about the way that English is taught in public schools today being exactly the same as it was 200 years ago. It's just that the school itself is different. So when I bring up colonialism, people say, oh, it's a long time ago, but it's not. The ideas are the same, right? The context is different. So if we're not challenging the tenets of the field, then the colonization continues unabated. Then this one, I hate this one. Please do not call yourself any sort of ELL warrior. I see this a lot. I, I can't deal with this. Uh, if I'm being charitable, which I am not inclined to do, uh, people who classify themselves this way, a warrior, you're fighting, right? But you're fighting to have your students included in this oppressed system, right? Is it better? to fight because you're thinking your students are being excluded and ignored. Well, you want to bring them in, but what we really need to do is push farther and challenge what's happening in the system, all right? So we're fighting for the status quo. Is it better for them to be on the outside of the status quo or on the inside? I don't know. That's a philosophical question, but the focus of what you need to be fighting isn't that. It takes no risk and no radical love to be a status quo seder, which is something my friend, it's a phrase my friend told me and I like it a lot. Um, 
great. So I made fun of well-meaning majoritized teachers. <laughs> all right, I can make fun of people all day. I do it a lot, but I should actually be useful to people. Before I have you all talk to each other and then we talk together, because it's only three o'clock, uh, I'm gonna give you some better examples. And then you're gonna come up with some more after that. All right, so these are some things from, and if you want this, I can send this to you so you can have the citation. Um, so there was one study where an elementary teacher chose not, and that's like, so these are children, children, right? Uh, chose not to shy away from discussing the complexity and difficulty of race with refugee students. A lot of the time they say, well, you know, they might not be able to handle that discussion, right? It's really is the teacher who can't handle the discussion, right? So that was something where the students were provided with the full humanity that they're not always provided with, okay? Now, you could say, I don't really know how to teach that. That's difficult. Fair. You have to do that work so you can be prepared to teach that to those students or at least engage in those conversations. And sometimes when you think about the banking system, one of the things that is you know, an assumption of it is that you know everything. So when you go into a conversation about race or something like that, the fact is you're not going to know everything. And because you don't know everything, you feel uncomfortable having that lesson, having that discussion. You're going to, you don't want to know nothing, so you do need to do some work, but being, being comfortable with being uncomfortable in your teaching is one of the things that not enough of us do. And again, I'm including myself in the people who have not done this all the time. Uh, in another example, uh, the teachers created self, sorry, safe, rebellious spaces. So whether that was in the school or the classroom, they gave the students time to simply be with each other and discuss things so that the school, which for a lot of them was an oppressive space, right? Actually, they were allowed to challenge these boundaries without any fear of repercussion, okay? How can that be done? Well, that's something that you all can talk about in a minute, but the fact is, this is something that's happening in places, right? It's not as top down as it usually is. These things can be created. And then some sort of more pedagogy things. Yes, that is my little brand on standardized English. So we need to, Stop framing standardized English as the only desirable form of the language, right? If you are teaching in a particular location and the people around there speak a certain way where they communicate in English a certain way, there is nothing less valuable about that. And I know all of us can sit here and say, I believe that, but how does that show up in your classroom, right? If you work in the Bronx or something like that, is it really true that you show in your classroom that the English used outside the classroom is just as valuable as the English used inside the classroom? Do you actually do that, right? We, and myself as part of this, we can take some time to learn to understand different varieties of English, right? This is, a, this is 2021, everything's on the internet, right? And they have these massive corpuses, is that corpi? I don't know, uh, where you can hear people speaking different forms of English. Right? If you, for example, struggle, and I'm just picking a language, I'm not making a point here. If you struggle to understand people who are from Northeastern China when they speak English, you can go find clips of people speaking English from Northeastern China, right? If you struggle with a different place, you can do that. And the research actually tends to show that it's a lot easier to understand people speaking English than to learn to speak English. So that is, you know, we can meet our students closer to halfway than we are meeting them. And that's just work to do. I mean, yeah, maybe you're busy, you want to do it over the summer. Fine, take a week and listen to a bunch of varieties of English. You will get better at it, you know? Uh, I kind of mentioned this already, but teaching the varieties surrounding a school's location, 
Okay, and you're gonna mention the tests in a second. I know the tests are a problem. We'll talk about it briefly. But uh, if you have people who, you know, you have some students who are speaking a Dominican version of English. You have some students who are speaking an Indian version of English. You have some students who are speaking a Japanese version of English, right? Do whatever you can so they can bring that in. There, of course, we can also talk about translanguaging and having them use all of their language varieties. That's not really what I'm talking about here. That's great, it's just a different subject. But if they're using English differently, however they're communicating, show that off. That is a valuable thing. It is equally valuable, if not more so, than whatever it is that we're speaking to them. Uh, you know, ask them. You know, when you communicate with your, if, if they communicate with their parents in English in any way, how, you know, what would you say to your mother when you say something like this, right? That sort of thing. It's, it's, it's not hard and fast because I don't really do hard and fast because that's the point of the checklist presentation, but it's just something to consider and think about. And you're going to talk about it in a second. Now the tests. Many of you have to deal with tests that are not of your own design. Uh, and there's probably not a whole lot you can do about their existence. I'm aware. Uh, so my theory on the test really is if we position tests as a mutual obligation that you all can work together towards as something to overcome together as opposed to the end goal of the course, then it works a lot better. And then you and the students can talk about how you together succeeded as opposed to them being valued based on their success or not success. That's the way I think the test. It's easier said than done, but so is everything. And that's kind of the point of all this. I know this looks like a checklist, right? Because it's a list. Um, <laughs> but the problem isn't list. The problem is none of these things are quick fixes, right? That's the point. I, I said, go learn how to understand wide varieties of English. That's not a step. That's something you have to go and do over time, right? That's the point. Checklists are things that's like, I did this one thing and I did this next thing. That's the difference. Because I know someone could be like, well, you know, that's a list, Justin. All right, relax. So my confession here is that this didn't just come out of nowhere, right? I used to be really into the whole grit thing. My first presentation ever as an academic type person in 2015 was all about grit. I was like, here's how we can use it and we can improve our students' lives and all this stuff. And they loved it, the crowd loved it, right? I get more people to come to the old kind of presentations than I do to come to these type of presentations. I did a growth mindset-based presentation. I took that to TESOL International in Seattle. I had like 100 people in the room and they all clapped, right? And I could have gone on with that, but I realized that with all of those things, with all of those talking points, I was placing the blame on the students. The problem was inside of the students in the way I was framing things, right? I was saying, you know, if we just do this thing, things will be better for the students, but then I'm still sending them out into the world that sees them a certain way. Can you fix everything in the world? No, but if you orient yourself towards challenging that system that they're in, you have a better chance of supporting them. So anyway, now you're all gonna talk. Get together, you know, safely with people around you. I want you to tell me what's an example of a checklist that was imposed on you in your classroom or on your school, okay? How can we move past these sort of buzzword and checklist things? If you think it's really difficult to move past the sort of buzzword checklist culture, and it might be, what kind of support do you think you would need to stop those things from taking over what you do? And then just more generally, what are some ways you can show radical love 
to your students. All right, go ahead, talk. <laughs> 